Growing up in Brazil, uh, mid-60s, uh, early 70s, my parents, of course, were always trying to move the family along and sort of uh, try to give us a better life than what they had. And one of the things that was very common in Brazil, and I'm assuming most Latin American countries at the time, was uh, you have to do some kind of music lessons and you need to speak French. So and it was like a status symbol. That's a little bit of a litmus test. You belong in the middle class if you can check those two boxes. And we were able to check one. We, we never learned French, uh, but we were able to attend uh, music lessons from a very early age. And I remember going to the National School of Music in Rio de Janeiro um, and taking the bus with my grandma. My grandma would take both my older brother, Alex, and I, and we would be both in such a foul mood. We did not want to go to that place. The place was big and gloomy, and it stunk. It was not a fun place for us to be. And I would just make, make a you know sort of sad, uh, bitter face, but go along with it otherwise quietly. My brother, oy, my brother would be that brat kid that makes the scene in the in the in the you know the 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 public public places and in the grocery stores that everybody looks at and wonders why is that parent not doing something about that child? So that would be my brother, and uh, very interesting because even though we resisted and we really did not enjoy the first contact with music. Once we were in, something happened, and both Alex, my older brother, and I became just infatuated with it at such a core level that, are you ready for this? This is, this is earth-shattering. We would skip playing soccer with our friends growing up so that we could play flute-recorded duets in the living room. I mean, it was it was that type of transformation, earth-shattering, redefining moment in our lives. That's fantastic. Now, what instrument did you start on? I started on flute recorder and piano. Uh, that's how they, they all started. And then after the first year, uh, doing flute recorder and piano and also ORF and choir, you start with those four things, ORF, flute recorder, piano, and choir. After the first year of that, you are encouraged to choose uh, a main instrument. And uh, I ended up coming down a Saturday morning, coming down the, the staircase uh, after a choir rehearsal. And there was this older guy, maybe five, six years older than me, playing this instrument at the bottom of the staircase out in the, in the corridor. And he was making just these beautiful scales. And I was just, it was just tantalizing. I stopped and I looked at it and he turned to me and said, hey, what's up, kid? And I said, what is this that you're playing? And he said, this is a clarinet. I said, oh, thanks, bye. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> that was my introduction to clarinet. And the next, very next year, I started clarinet at the age of uh, eight. And, uh, and it was uh, a lifelong love affair. And it continues to this day. That is a fantastic story. Now, what about your brother, Alex? What did he play? My brother, Alex, is a trumpet player. And likewise, he was infatuated with a trumpet once he heard it. There was a guy that turned out to be the professor, the teacher of uh, trumpet at the School of Music, and uh, he heard that guy playing, and likewise, he was just fascinated by it and picked it up and never looked back. Now, how did your grandma and your parents react to this infatuation? They were quite surprised, and uh, <laughs> gladly so, because in many ways they saw that as sort of a, uh, uh, a validation of everything that they had thought and hoped for us. 
And now, of course, my, my grandma uh, passed away uh, perhaps six, seven years ago. Uh, and my mom continues to be uh, absolutely proud of both of us. Uh, my brother Alex is a freelance musician in Virginia. Uh, and, of course, I am over here at Houghton College in Houghton, New York. And uh, my mom thinks that we are the just the best musicians in the world. And, of course, we don't talk about other people a whole lot because we want to keep her thinking like that. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a fantastic journey. And we're very grateful for that otherwise bumpy beginning. Is your mom still in Brazil? She is still in Brazil. My whole family is still in Brazil except for Alex. Now, what brought you to the United States? Oh, what a great question. Um, not music. Uh, surprisingly enough, at that time, just like everybody else, we go through seasons of life. In that season of my life, I was very much interested in bringing the gospel to minorities. And I knew that there were great communities of Portuguese-speaking uh, individuals in Massachusetts. And I thought, you know, I would love to go there and just start working with those individuals and share my faith with them and see what else I can do uh, in that particular place. And so it began. I uh, sold everything that I had in Brazil, uh, gave away what I could not sell, bought a ticket and came here with about $1,700 in my pocket and uh, landed in Fall River, Massachusetts. Of course, didn't land there, landed in Miami. But then from Miami, went uh, to Fall River, Massachusetts, stayed there for about a year and a half, working with, uh, with uh, Portuguese-speaking communities. And from there, met an individual in Texas who said, hey, you're doing such a great job over here. How about doing the same thing at a nicer, warmer climate in Texas? We desperately need, need bilingual volunteers and workers in our churches in Texas. And I thought, well, but I don't speak Spanish. Oh, no problem, he said. You speak Portuguese, you're going to learn Spanish in no time. And uh, the idea of a warmer climate really, uh, <laughs> really sounded just delicious to me. So after some time of consideration, I moved to Texas. And uh, by a wonderful, wonderful coincidence, uh, one of those unexpected meetings, I ended up playing piano bar at a place in Nacogdoches, Texas. And I did that for a couple of years. I uh, just continued to do my community work with uh, uh, churches, Hispanic churches now. It took me, by the way, it took me about seven months to, to learn Spanish and to start actually communicating in Spanish. That is impressive. We don't think of missionaries coming from other countries to the United States, but I know it happens. You know, people come here to evangelize. There were two women in my small town when I was growing up that lived there to, you know, spread the gospel. And uh, it's kind of a strange concept to us because we think, you know, like everyone, we have it all together. But yeah, other countries look at America and see this need for spirituality and especially, yeah. especially in uh, specialty enclaves, you know, places where people speak a specific language as their primary language other than English. And that was my case, both in Massachusetts with uh, Portuguese speakers in uh, Fall River, and then later in Nacogdoches, Texas, with Spanish-speaking individuals and communities. Wow, what a ministry. So how, you're, you're playing in this piano bar, how did you get back, hooked back into the river <laughs> of music? <laughs> the river of music, <laughs> it, it bypassed me only for a short amount of time. 
because within those two years at uh, playing piano bar at Capelli's restaurant and, and bar in Nacogdoches, Texas, uh, an individual by the name of Andy Parr, unbeknownst to me, was a regular client. And he would come and uh, sit down with his wife, Linda Parr, and enjoy a great uh, Italian meal and the piano. And one day, finally, he came over and said, hey, um, I would uh, would love to introduce myself. My name is Andy Parr. I teach piano at the local university, which happens to be Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas, SFA, go Lumberjacks. <laughs> and uh, he introduced himself and said, a conversation started, what are you doing? What are your plans? And I said, well, I'm uh, volunteering at a couple of different churches in the area, uh, teaching English to uh, people who don't speak English, uh, sharing my faith. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in, in Christ. And he said, oh, that's all wonderful, but what about music in your life? I said, well, maybe someday if, uh, if I'm able to go back to music, I would love to do that. And he said, what would you like to do? I said, well, I would love to teach. I love teaching. And he said, well, you know, here in America, <laughs> Here in America, if you don't have a degree, it's very hard for you to find a good position teaching. You really need to have a degree. Of course, I started music so early and was able to accomplish certain things uh, much earlier than the average musician in Brazil. Never really considered going to college because at that point, my talent or my uh, uh, perceived giftedness uh, far surpassed my education. Well, you were playing a clarinet in an orchestra at professionally opera, at 16? At the Opera House Symphony Orchestra, Teatro Municipal. So why go Rio to college, right? So <laughs> why do co do go to college? So I already had the dream job at the age of 16. So fast forward to Nacogdoches, Texas, and now Andy Parr, Dr. Parr, uh, is telling me a different perspective. He said, no, over here in this country, uh, talent only takes you so far. As a matter of fact, as you can see, talent has taken you to Capelli's to play piano bar. But if you really want to go farther and teach, you really need a degree. Why don't you come over my office and let's talk about it? And lo and behold, the very next week, I was at SFA, Stephen F. Austin, talking to Dr. Andy Parr, who happened to be the chair of the piano division at the School of Music. And uh, he offered me a, a, a small little scholarship to go back to school and he said, don't you also play the clarinet? And I said, yes, sir, I do. Well, go talk to Fred Allen. He's the band director. He might have more scholarship money for you. And there I went. Talked to uh, Fred Allen, who became a great friend to this day. And uh, he's actually coming to Houghton College in the spring to teach a uh, master class in conducting a music education. So Fred Allen gave me another little scholarship and... There I was, back in music, studying uh, for a bachelor's in music at Stephen F. Austin. Uh, from there, the doors opened for me to go to Evanston, Illinois, for a master's in clarinet performance. And from there to Ann Arbor, Michigan, University of Michigan, go blue, for a doctorate in clarinet performance. And it has been just an incredible journey. Wow, now you've been teaching music. You were teaching music history at Houghton, and you're conducting as well, so you're doing all the things now. I started teaching music history because, gratefully, I have this this undying interest and, and thirst for all things history, whether it be history of the world or history of the United States or history of music. I'm just this history magnet, and I, I love everything about it. So I took extra credits that were not related to my degree 
in history and musicology, both at Northwestern and at the University of Michigan. Uh, and unbeknownst to me, I would use exactly those credits to allow me to get a job at Houghton College. So they hired me to be the music professor, the music history professor, uh, five years ago. And then the very next year, the position came open for uh, the dean of the School of Music, and uh, I was the one holding the short stick. So you're uh, an administrator at Houghton now, the dean of the school there. Uh, Where do you feel most happy, most at home in all of these joyful activities? On the podium, you know, as an administrator, playing your clarinet? I would have to say, Brenda, uh, even though I love each one of those areas, each one of those uh, circles. I love performing the clarinet and the saxophone. I love performing the piano. I love the administrative part of things because you get to to create, almost like shape up the future with your colleagues. You look at circumstances and possibilities. You look at this donor and you look at that program and you put those two things together and next thing you know, magic is happening. So there's a certain beauty in administration as well. But I must say, Conducting is really where I have found my inner peace. After all of these different facets and roads and and travails of life, when I'm on the podium, whether it's with students at Houghton College or uh, uh, honors students in Virginia or New York, I did both honors uh, state orchestras here in New York a couple years ago, last year in Virginia. Uh, Next spring, I'm conducting the Amherst Symphony Orchestra uh, for their final concert of the season. Uh, No matter where I am, with young musicians or seasoned professionals, when you are on the podium creating music, every time is a brand new experience, and you get to take your audience on that amazing journey with you. You get to let them experience all the emotion, all the suffering, the pain, the joys, the laughter, all the quiz, uh, the quimsical uh, uh, moments of life that you carry uh, in your musical message. And there's just nothing that compares to that. What are some of your favorite pieces to conduct? Uh, it would have to be, uh, I would say, um, Candide Overture which we are doing again uh, this coming uh, November 1st and November 3rd at Houghton College. Um, I would say Tchaikovsky Fourth. That symphony uh, was such an incredible uh, threshold, such an important moment in the life of Tchaikovsky. He was struggling at so many different levels, and yet he found that inner voice speaking to him and, and, and giving him ballast in life as he's composing that fourth symphony. And that speaks to me in multiple levels of my own existence. So when I get to conduct Tchaikovsky for any Tchaikovsky symphony, but the fourth in particular, I find uh, that I am connecting at a very high level, not only with my musicians and the audience, but with the composer himself. What are you learning from the composer? What is, uh, what is that connection? I am learning from Tchaikovsky, especially when I conduct the fourth, that music transcends any and all vicissitudes of life. All of the questions for which you have no answer, even when you think that you know where things are going and life just throws you that curveball, 
you know, from that opening fanfare. Hold on. What chord is that? We're not supposed to go here. But that is the beauty of it. In that musical way, he found this very simple explanation and sort of a blueprint. He's saying, learn from me. I am over here faced with all of these unanswerable questions in my own life, struggles of existential nature that I don't fully understand, expectations of society, my own inner demons. And yet here's this amazing art that speaks to me and allows me not only to understand my place, but to find significance. That's what I hear him saying. Do you think he resolved that question? Do you think he found inner peace? Uh, I don't know. I hope he did. Uh, I know that I find great inner peace in his music, in all of his music. So I, I can't answer that question, but I would say I hope he did. What are some of your musical obsessions just listening, you know, at home, in your car? Are there pieces or composers that you go back to again and again and again? Anything uh, Dave Cause. Um anything Tchaikovsky, any Puccini opera. I'm a big sucker for Puccini. <laughs> it's not even funny. Uh, I remember spending hours, hours on uh, during my first marriage. Maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons I got divorced the first time. I would spend hours, uh, uh, endless hours, listening to opera on my own with my headphones, just completely detached from the world. Um and uh, in terms of uh, Christian music, I also enjoy uh, contemporary Christian music. Uh, Michael W. Smith, David Crowder, all those good guys. Um, so um, I, I find great enjoyment in a wide plethora of, uh, of music genres, from jazz to contemporary Christian to opera to classical symphonies. You're an omnivore. Do you still play in the piano bar? That must not be <laughs> approved at Houghton for sure. I went to Houghton. I know about Houghton. <laughs> yes, yes. We do We do have certain rules and regulations, but no, yeah. no, uh, no regulations against playing uh, piano bars. I <laughs> no longer have the time yeah, to do so. I would love to do so, but the time is just a fleeing thing. What do you love about working in Houghton and about the Houghton students in particular? Houghton is a very special place, as, as you may recall. Ro Houghton is the type of place that allows you to become who you ought to be. Uh, it's a place that, as, as uh, I have heard uh, different times, it's a place where you can pursue faith and learning in a way that is not conflicting. Uh, it's not a this or that, one or the other, it's both and. Um, and, of course, we have individuals over there who, uh, students particularly, who are still searching for their faith. Not everybody at Houghton uh, believes in God or believes in the Bible, uh, but that's okay because that's part of this wonderful thing called life. Uh, we are all pursuing the understanding of who we are, who we are called to be, what are our passions, what is the reason why we exist. So Houghton is sort of this monastic place uh, right there in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by unspeakable, beautiful nature. 
And uh, we just happen to be a very small community of learned individuals pursuing faith, pursuing knowledge, and enjoying the heck out of everything that we do, whether it be the engineering department with their new projects or the education people tra training the next generations of uh, public school teachers or in the School of Music, the Great Batch School of Music, where we are training uh, not only performers and educators, but we're also training the next generation of mid music industry and technology uh, professionals. Um, so it's a very unique place, and it's an honor to, uh, to be a part of it.